Hi, welcome to another episode of Dawncast. My name is Kathy Ngo. And I'm Dai Lee. And we have a very special guest with us today. It's Mr. Wayo. Hi, Way. How are you guys going? Very good. Good, good. good. I'll just do a, a little quick intro about you. So, Way is a serial social entrepreneur. He's been named the Social Entrepreneur of the Year for 2019. He is the co founder of OIC Cambodia, Happy Kids Clinic, and Umbo. Welcome again. That's a lot of. Uh, I know. That's a, that's a lot of. Uh, I know, like you're founding so many companies, <laughs> <laughs> so many businesses there. Yeah, I mean, you know, we, um, yeah, I mean, I think we're kind of taught to keep on moving, and it's. I wouldn't be a true millennial if I wasn't doing like multiple things at one time. So yeah, I mean, I'm, I'm speaking like to the converted in that regard. So yeah, I'm a millennial I, too. Sounds like I'm a millennial too. Then <laughs> I think you are. Though. Just you know, going on the basis of personality. Oh, thank it's, you. It's a mindset you. thing, right? Yeah. Millennial mindset. That's right. It's got nothing to yeah. do with age. Um, but yeah, look, I think. The, the reason we'd love to to kind of uh, we've had way on before um, but uh, we wanted to have him back on to talk to us about umbo and about the work that uh, his business and his team are doing around delivering speech therapy therapists uh, to the regional area and mm. now that we're in covid 19 lockdown how is that all panning out and how that's all looking so can you share way yeah so umbo is a social enterprise so we we set up primarily to solve a problem and the problem is that there are so many families particularly children in rural australia that are lacking access to services particularly in allied health and particularly speech and occupational therapy so these kids are waiting up to 12 to 18 months to get basic services and this blows my mind in australia in one of the richest countries in the world um yeah and so we've been setting it up for two years and of course COVID 19 hit and all of a sudden there are restrictions around movement schools are closing down Childcare centres are closing down, and because our our social enterprise runs entirely online, um, of course we're just perfectly positioned to help to um, solve that problem. So we've had a really interesting, roughly two months now. I mean, it's it's hard to keep track of time, isn't it? It feels like it's been eight years since we've been you know locked in homes, but it's <laughs> yeah. probably been only about seven or eight weeks. Yeah, yeah. So you said you've been delivering this online already. The work that you're doing through Umbo has there been a spike yeah. since COVID, or is it just the same because you are online anyway? So has it has business changed, or the demand we, come in? Yeah, well, we do. There, there has been a, a huge increase. There's there's sort of two different streams that we do. One of the things that we do is we support private practices, particularly around allied health, to transition from face to face to then going online. And of course, that's been a huge need for that kind of service because these practices can't keep their physical doors open. So what we did was we created a summit online. We had over 500 attendees. We created it in about five days. Wow. We've seen as a result of that about a 57 times increase in demand for our training. And then the second thing we do is we get therapists that are all around Australia and we connect them with families, most of the kids, and then they do the therapy online. And we've seen about a thousand percent increase in demand, particularly on the clinician side. So we think that the need for this service will continue to go up. Even if after COVID-19 ends, if that is such a thing, I still think that demand will remain high because people will start to realise that actually there are so many benefits to doing this online. Absolutely, yeah. What, you're talking about the numbers of, of children that need uh, the service that you're providing. 
what 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 are we talking about? Like, how big uh, is the problem? Yeah. So, in, in terms of speech therapy, we're talking about one in twenty five kids. That's a global statistic. But Speech Pathology Australia uses a figure that's more like one in eight. So, one in eight wow. in your lifetime will need speech therapy, and occupational therapy is about the same. It might be a bit of overlap. You might need both services. So the numbers are very high, and the reason that the numbers are so high is because it's such a catch-all for so many different types of conditions. So it ranges from everything from people who can't communicate because they've got a stutter, perhaps, or their, their speech isn't clear, to all the way to autism, intellectual disability. Um, then there are, of course, people who have had strokes, cerebral palsy, um, all sorts of different conditions where it affects your communication. And so where, where are you now with the, the delivery? So it's mainly online now, and so it's about matching mm. your, uh, the, the clients, if you can call it that, those kids, yeah. and matching with the physiotherapists or, uh, and speech therapists, speech therapist. sorry, speech therapists and occupational therapists that you have on, on your database? Yeah, that's correct. So we, what we do is we hire the therapists, we recruit them, we uh, accredit them and make sure that they're trained in the delivery of online because it's a very small subset of therapists that can do it at the moment. And then um, we match them up with our clients that are usually in rural communities. And, um, you know, we've seen the numbers increase definitely in the last few months. It was already increasing, to be honest, before COVID-19. But I think with families, you know, a lot of families are really struggling to cope having their kids at home if they're homeschooling them. So therapy is not exactly front and centre for a lot of these families, right? You imagine that a lot of these families are used to having, let's say, two parents working full-time and maybe a couple of kids that are usually at school. Now those kids are at home and it's just that much more pressure on the family. So one of our challenges at the moment is to work out how we continue these kids to receive therapy without being an extra burden on the families. We don't want to give the parents more homework they have enough to do at the moment. Yeah, um, so, so many things online. You know, you have to read. You have to everything's it's really online. Yeah, yeah. Mm. yeah. So what we what we've also do, done is uh, started to collate a bunch of free resources that the parents can download from our uh, website as well, um, and they're there to support the parents. Um, we're, we're not here to tell parents that they need to um, do things that they weren't doing or that you know they're being lax. Um, we're really here just to walk with the parents in this journey and acknowledge that it's difficult, acknowledge that it's really hard and very challenging. It will remain that way for a while and try and be a low maintenance service where we can still see results in the kids, but not be an extra burden on the families. What platform do you use for the online um, therapy? Is it like a Zoom or is it like a special dedicated secure platform for your services? Yeah. Um, at the moment, we're using a service called Coviu, which is C-O-V-I-U. It's an Australian um, service. But that's just one part of the therapy. So a lot of people think that online therapy for speech and occupational therapy is a lot about video calls. And that's a big part of it, but it goes much beyond that. It's, um, it can be text messaging. It can be sending photos on WhatsApp, videos of my kid doing this on WhatsApp, emailing, of course, um, reading PDFs. And it, and it's, it goes well beyond um, just doing video calls. And what that means is that we're able to... Um, keep the therapy going even when the technology fails us right and technology does fail this morning i was on a on a team call with uh, nine of our team members and i was hosting the call and it was my internet that dropped out the nbn just dropped out for about half an hour oh god and wow. then my, i was backing it up in my you know use i mean who would have thought yeah and i was you know <laughs> using my mobile phone to to back up and that wasn't working either so you know 
having backups to backups to backups really work well. Um, and I've just learned from living in Cambodia for five years that you can never have enough uh, plan C's, D's, E's and F's. Yeah. <laughs> um, this, this goes into, it's almost like you're delivering um, health, a, a health service via digital, isn't it? It's, it's kind of digital mm. health. It mm. looks like we're moving more increasingly towards that space. Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. And, and this is the trend that's happening anyway, right? And uptake in terms of digital health, the, the studies are showing that the desire to do it is low amongst consumer groups and amongst pra uh, practitioners. But depending on which study you look at, one of our advisors has done a fair bit of research for Sydney Uni. And one of the, the studies that she cites shows that there is actually more resistance amongst the clinicians than amongst the families, particularly in rural areas, because I believe that they often um, see the benefits and they don't necessarily have a lot of other options. Now, of course, with COVID-19, your options are really limited in terms of seeing people face to face. So I think it's almost like a guinea pig period where we can test out this idea for a lot of people. And then once things go back to normal, in inverted commas, they'll think to themselves, well, why aren't we doing this all the time? You know, and, and we'll start to see that that curve will go up and it will remain high. That's my prediction. But anyway, let's see. Do you reckon things will go back to normal? I don't think so. I don't know what normal is anymore. Yeah, I, I, what, what is normal? Normal is boring. <laughs> yeah, you, know, um, you know. I think in terms of, yeah, in terms of people being able to interact freely and go to places and not feel like they're going to be infected. Um, oh, yeah, you know, and, and there's more freedom of movement. Yeah. But it, it's really interesting, right? Because I think in, in Queensland yesterday, they relaxed a lot of the um, restrictions. And now they're saying they can travel up to 50 kilometres to, to get non-essential services, right? And I, I noticed that someone on Twitter posted something about, well, that's really great. What about if you live rurally? Mm. 50 kilometres is, is nothing. It's nothing. You know, that's not anywhere. So I, I think that, you know, we're trying to do the best we can in a really difficult situation, but rural communities really do miss out on this mainstream broad-bushed policy approach. And that's why I'm really um, proud of what we do is we really try and focus on doing something that's appropriate for rural communities. And a lot of our clinicians are rurally based. Um, one of my co-founders has done a lot of his research um, in Western New South Wales. He himself is based in Western New South Wales. Getting that really right for those rural populations is really important for us. And of course, being a social enterprise, we're, we're here primarily to serve some kind of purpose to the world, not to create profit. Mm. Do you think you'll introduce any other services besides speech therapy? Yeah, well, if the demand um, requests it, we, we're absolutely open to, um, you know, adding physiotherapy, dietitians, exercise physiologists, psychologists. The sky's really the limit. But for us, it's been focusing on a particular niche that we know people cannot get readily or have to wait long periods of time to actually receive it and really making sure we get that niche right and understanding what it is that people really want. Um, and I think that's, again, just to make the point that we're not here to tell people what to do. I think that's really important in the way that we do our work is that we're actually here to stand um, and walk alongside other people and make sure that they are, um, we're, we're with them for this journey. And I think what better analogy to use at a time like this when people really want you to walk with them. Mm. When you're talking about niche, you, you focus a lot, obviously, in the, on the rural uh, area, don't you? Because yeah. Uh, the, there are a lot of services that are not available there that are available in metropolitan and cities. Yeah, yeah, we take it for granted, right? But even in, yeah. just, to, just to throw it back to the urban side, 
even in ur urban communities, um, the wait time to see these kinds of therapists for paediatric cases can be up to three months. You know, and, and it's just that we're not used to waiting that long in, in urban communities. Rural communities, they're used to waiting 12 plus months to get services. But I think even three months is, is quite a long time to be seen. Um, these are people that are private paying, they're sort of ready to go. So um, one of the things that we've discovered, I guess, over the last two years with UMBO is that the, the question always remains about when you see a problem, why is that a problem? Like, why is it that the wait times are so long? And a very common answer we hear is that, well, it's just simply that supply is not uh, satisfying demand. There are not enough therapists and there are too many people who need the service. But it's not as simple as that. One of the things that we've learned is that when we give our therapists the ability to work whenever they want, wherever they want, and I'll use an example, one of uh, a number, most of them are mothers, of course, because most of these therapists are female. Um, a lot of them are mothers. And what they're doing is they're doing a couple of hours after dropping the kids off at school in a normal day. You know, they might do an hour or two when the kids get home, maybe an hour or two when the kids are asleep. So what we're doing is we're activating an underactivated segment of the job market. We're bringing these people back into employment. And the theory is that if we do this enough times with as many therapists as possible, we'll actually have enough supply. So it's not as simple as saying, you know, there are no therapists. The question is more about how do we create a work environment where these therapists can actually contribute? It's just the way that people were working before was an old way of thinking. And um, I think you were mentioning before that there has been some resistance to adopt, to have online adoption. And I think it's just, mm. yeah, like it's very old school. And yeah. yeah, I actually saw a meme that said, oh, what what um, forced your digital transformation? Well, it was COVID. <laughs> COVID. Did you say that meme? <laughs> no, I haven't seen that meme yet. <laughs> yeah, but that, that's been, it. You know, we, I talked about these therapists that we work with to transition from face-to-face -to, -face to online and as I mentioned, there's as much resistance in therapist communities as there are in uh, families, if not more, perhaps. And we've talked to therapists who've been talk who've been saying, you know, I've been thinking about going online and doing digital practice since 2003. And then you go, well, there's nothing like a pandemic to, to put you into action. Mm. Then there's all these things around private health insurance and Medicare that are now releasing item numbers for online supports. And we've heard consistently this would never happen. And again, nothing like a pandemic to, to kick stuff into action. It's taken weeks for them to actually do this as opposed to never will never happen, you know. So I think COVID-19 is a really big opportunity for us to question exactly what you said before, Cathy, about what is normal? What is business as usual? And why is it like that? You know, why is it that we don't have a lot of remote working? Why is it that we, um, we tell people they've got to be in the office at nine o'clock and if they're not at their desk, they're, they're seen to be lazy. Another point I'd make is about why is it that in employment, people with disabilities uh, who often have to work from home were not considered to be um, suitable to work in a lot of enterprises, you know? And, and there is a, a feeling within disability communities from what I am hearing that um, there's a little bit of anger there and a bit of resentment about, okay, you're all kind of doing what we would ordinarily do and now it's acceptable, but Previously, we were told that we couldn't um, contribute. Mm, exactly. I think even with flexible work, uh, before it was like oh, it's hard to implement a flexible work policy in the workplace and suddenly you're able this to. This has happened. This yeah. has happened. Um, yeah. But do you think, what do you think uh, for today's, in today's you know leadership 
what 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 are you what is a leader called to do in and operate in this climate in, in COVID nineteen? What kind of skill set would a mm. a, lead, a leader leading an organisation need today? I think the first thing is also just to broaden that definition of leader, and that to me a leader is not necessarily the person leading. It's everyone within the organisation. It can be um, a person who knocks on the door of an elderly um, neighbour to make sure they're getting groceries. That's leadership too. Um, but I think moments like this where we have big changes to the world and they're very testing times, your true character comes through. And we're seeing that a lot with political leaders around the world at the moment. We're seeing that uh, different leaders are showing their different styles of leadership and some are working better than others. Um, and I think, you know, a leader at the moment, I am a, am a massive fan of Jacinta Ardern and a lot of the other female leaders in the world. And, and I think what they're kind of showing at the moment is that so, being soft does not mean you cannot be firm, that being empathetic doesn't mean you can also be um, decisive, that these two conditions are not necessarily in conflict with each other. And we've seen that if we look at Jacinta Ardern is that she's shown that empathy and compassion and walking with people alongside them is something that she can just do so naturally. But she's also able to tell us when and where we should be doing things and set boundaries and communicate that really effectively. Um, and I think communication is obviously really important. And uh, the one phrase that sticks out for me from her is that one about act as if you already have COVID-19. I mean, that's all you need to say. I mean, and then everything kind of follows from that. So we don't get wishy-washy communication when someone is that clear. Mm-hmm. Yeah. I must say I am a, a massive fan of her and her style. It's it's something, it, it's not hard, but yet I think because I guess political leaders, they've always been a certain type of person. Like when you think mm. of a leader, you don't think of someone like Jacinta. And I think the world has that sort of mindset. And I think she's just broken that. She's gone through so many crises at the moment with the, the bombings and um, like, she, yeah, she's just amazing. Well, first of all, there are not many women in, le- in, in political leadership anyway. Right. So I think to see a few that come through and taking that leadership uh, and having that presence and having that uh, style mm-hmm. really gives hope to, to other women. And, Absolutely. you know, I, I, I think uh, I would say, to, uh, you know, we've got uh, a, a female premier here. So, you know, she is in communication and uh, trying to get that message out to the community as well. Um, yeah, so look... Uh, and I guess I guess it's also like it's an opportunity for people across the world to see different styles of leadership and then to evaluate what they what, think works best. Yeah, what they can relate and, to, what they like, what they what's appealing. Diversity. Right. Diversity. <laughs> Diversity, yeah. And also just to that style of leadership where you can I mean, I'm thinking about some of the uh, the Facebook live things that she did where she was wearing her tracksuit pants and top and talking to kids and you know, I can't, I can't imagine a lot of male leaders in the world doing that. Sorry to say, particularly <laughs> Western leaders. That is so it's true. It's hard to imagine. Um, <laughs> so, you know, we, we sort of are, we're seeing a showcase of different styles of leadership. Um, one of the other things I've noticed about what, what we've been doing at Umbo at a more micro level is when this crisis hit at the beginning, you know, there was a lot of stress and tension about how we're going to react in our lives to change very quickly. So what we did was we increased our communication. We, we changed the, the way in which we met. We met online. We did daily check-ins on Zoom. And we also gave all of the team members, regardless of who they were, opportunities to talk about how they're going. Just a little mental health check-in, you know, how are you feeling today? And what I realised in that process of giving them that space to be heard 
particularly around their emotions, was that they moved very quickly from um, this, this period of freneticism to being reproductive and to actually saying, I can take charge. So it's, it's like, it reminds me of, you familiar with secure attachment, that with attachment theory, it suggests that kids need a, a level of attachment where they know that they're safe. And then that allows them to go out and take risks, mm. you know? And I think that's what, another thing about leadership as well is that our role is to provide that space in which people feel safe and secure as much as possible, particularly when outside our homes, things don't seem that way, mm. you know? And once people feel that and have the space where they're heard and they feel like they're being empathized with, then they're able to take risks. They're able to keep going with their work and, and do really amazing things. And I think that's what we're seeing a lot of Umbo at the moment. Mm. Well, look, thank you. I mean, that's what we're trying to do here at Dawncast too, is provide a, a space for people to provide insights. A safe uh, space. A safe space, you know, for people to talk and inform others, but not coming from fear or triggering. Judgment. Uh, yeah. So, mm. you know, so it's, it's good to have you back again, um, Way and uh, and and where where what's next for you? What's what's oh, on? how's the stand up yeah. comedy going? He's got a stand up comedy. I'm waiting for your coaching session, Cathy. <laughs> oh, I um, didn't know you were waiting. I'm sorry. <laughs> anytime you're ready, I'm ready. Um, yeah, well, I'm, well, I'm, yeah, I'm, I'm learning stand up. Uh, wow. Well, I'm actually doing an advanced course at the moment uh, online. So awesome. Oh really? Advanced. advanced has nothing to do with competency of the participant. <laughs> <laughs> It's to learn the tricks of the trade. Oh, wow. <laughs> yeah. I'm going to see this way, being a comedian. <laughs> yeah, and that's actually helped quite a lot. I mean, it's helped a lot with work stuff, ironically, in your communication style as well. But I think what's next for Umbo is we really want to, um, we really want to make sure that we're, we're empathising with our communities of practitioners and also with families. And, and that's been another thing as well is that we haven't done anything that is um, promoting fear. And I think that's a really interesting point to raise. Sorry, I'm stretching our time a little bit. But no. it's an interesting point to raise because that has been the response of a lot of other similar enterprises out there is to sort of say, you need us right now. And, you know, that's not our message at all. And, you know, I've been on the phone with a couple of practitioners who, who have been very, very distressed about the environment they're in, considering closing their business, losing their livelihoods, et cetera. And we've coached and talked our way through them. And I think that's because we have instilled in them this security about we're here with you and we're here to walk with you and we're not here to tell you what to do. Mm. And that level of compassion has helped. So I think having that basis will help us to grow our support more. And I think we're going to see a huge uptick in all of the services that we do. And then, of course, a better result, particularly for kids in rural and remote Australia. Mm. Well, thank you very much for that. Um, absolutely. How Let's, can people reach you? Yeah. You can reach us on the website, which is umbo.com.au. Um, my own personal website is my name, wehyeoh.com. Um, all the usual social media platforms except uh, Instagram and TikTok. But the more <laughs> adult ones, my age demographic, I'm on those ones. Hey, hey, you get to come on board with TikTok with us next time. You we said are, that you were millennial. Yeah, I just millennial. Up recently. Uh, yeah, we got her to sign up to do TikTok. So we have to do TikTok together, uh, Way. I'm surprised you're still being productive at work. Yeah, we are productive. It is. It is a productive work. I tell, tell you that much. Because TikTok it, is not procrastinating. You know, it's educational. It, it is. Uh, it is you educational. I'll move. give you that. <laughs> <laughs> 
Okay. Well, thank you for watching Dawncast today. Uh, my name is Dai Lee. And I'm Kathy Ngo. And don't forget to subscribe to our channel. Click the big red subscribe button and leave a comment if you want to see um, a guest um, or if you want to nominate yourself. Take care. Stay safe, everyone. And talk soon. Bye. Oh, yeah, bye. <laughs> Thanks for having me, guys. Thanks.